So in the last few talks when I was here last time, we started in a way honing in specifically to insight practice and to start exploring in more depth, well, what are we actually gaining insight into? And one really key place that we're landing those insights is insight into what are known as the three universal characteristics of all experience. Namely, so let's see who can remember what these three characteristics are. Dukkha is the second one. Dukkha being stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness. What's the first one? Anicca, you even know the Pali, very good. Impermanence, you get extra points. Sure. Would you like to maybe sit closer? Would that be helpful? Yeah, let's see. And I will try to speak louder too. So the second one is, uh, sorry, the first one is Anicca or impermanence. The second one is Dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. The third one is Anatta, which is not, not self, not self. So how is the volume for you now? Yeah, it's good. I have normal hearing, but for some reason I'm... The acoustics in, in this hall, depending where you sit, can be... I yeah, think there's a few. Thank you. Yeah, glad. Okay, glad. I'll wave if I start getting quiet again. So this, we already talked a little bit about impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. So tonight we're going to start zooming into anatta or not self, which of the three is the most confusing, the ones that people tend to tie themselves in knots trying to work out intellectually. And that's part of the problem. <laughs> because it really can't be understood just through the intellect. It's an experiential, embodied understanding. One that emerges naturally when the heart and mind are ready. And there is also, in just the term in English, there's a problem with it, because as soon as we talk about not-self... The self that's being pointed to is not the same self that the Buddha, the same way that the Buddha was using that word. So in Western psychology, we want to have a healthy sense of self. That's a good thing to have. And then we hear this term not self, and it can sound like we're supposed to negate ourselves to somehow try and get rid of our sense of self. And the goal of practice is to become a nobody, a kind of colorless, personalityless, I don't know, blob. But this is a very <laughs> deep misunderstanding of what the Buddha is inviting us to do here. It might sound paradoxical or contradictory, but deeply understanding not-self actually improves our healthy sense of self. So to get a better grasp of what not-self refers to, we need to understand what the Buddha meant by the term self. So according to Buddhist scholars in India in the time of the Buddha, 
the self was used by the Indian philosophical and religious traditions of the Buddha's time to mean a kind of like a soul, how we would think of a soul in Christianity as a permanent, eternal, unchanging essence of who we are. So the term not-self was used by the Buddha to deliberately challenge the conventional understanding of his day, to highlight that because everything is changing, it's impossible for there to be a fixed, permanent entity in here at the center of it all who is experiencing all of this. Now, maybe on an intellectual level, we have some understanding of the truth of that. But I think for most people, on a, there is a primal feeling that, yeah, this is me. This is who I am. I'm not you. And it's natural part of being human to have that sense that I'm me, I'm not you. We all have different life histories, different personalities, different conditioning, and so on. The understanding of not-self doesn't negate any of that. The subtlety of the Buddha's teaching is he's inviting us to look at where we cling to that sense of me, where we try to make it more solid and fixed and permanent than it actually is. Because it's the clinging that creates the problems. So to the extent that we take something to be me, to be mine, to be solid, to be fixed, to be permanent, to be ultimately real, to that extent we tend to suffer. And so this learning to recognize where we cling to experience, where we get caught in taking it personally and identifying with it, it needs to be done with kindness and with humor, ideally, because all of us are doing it. And we don't want to make this into yet another project to judge ourselves by. It's not about trying to let go or force ourselves, if that were even possible. It's about changing our relationship to this sense of self. And I mention that because in some Buddhist circles, I hear people talk about, ooh, I caught myself selfing, as if that's some kind of sin almost. <laughs> and it can, it can lead to the, uh, you know, I've said this before, but if we're trying, if this sense of self is trying to get rid of the sense of self so the sense of self doesn't have a sense of self anymore, then it's just like a dog chasing its tail and we're just inadvertently actually reinforcing a sense of self that's not supposed to have a sense of self, but it does have a sense of self. And so we just go round and round. And we don't see that the sense of self itself is another empty, impermanent insubstantial arising. So we need humor to see where we cling, hold on, take personally, and even to appreciate that seeing, because unless we see it, we can't do anything about it. And until we have some 
insight into this process, most of us, most of the time, tend to live as if we were in our own, as if we were the star at the center of our own universe, our own movie. It's a movie that is called All About Me. And we write the script and we're the lead actor and we're the stylist and the producer and the executive director of our own life movie. And we get so seduced by that whole process playing out on the movie screen that we don't even recognize that we are fabricating the whole thing for ourselves. So in some ways, these teachings are an invitation from the Buddha to take our attention away from the story that's playing out on the screen and look instead at the projector, look at the mechanism that is creating this illusion of someone in there who is living out all of these dramas. Now still, perhaps for some of you, that doesn't sound very appealing. So I'd like to focus a little bit on what happens when we don't see these characteristics clearly, when we don't have any insight into the truth of not-self, we tend to suffer. And even on the most basic conceptual level, you can get a sense of this, again, looking at the English language. So a few, a couple of years ago when I was... uh, I got access to a big dictionary and I was looking up synonyms for the word self-conscious. And I was amazed in this huge dictionary to see how many words in English can start with self. It was a huge long list. And I was also interested to see that when I read that long list, most of those words were actually quite negative So I'd like to read you just a sample. And notice when you hear them, if there's any responses. So here's just a fairly random sample from that list. Self-absorbed. Self-aggrandizing. Self-approving. Self-centered. Self-complacent. Self-congratulatory, self-conscious, self-delusion, self-important, self-indulgent, self-opinionated, self-pitying, self-referencing, self-righteous, self-satisfied, self-serving. So I don't know about you. How do you feel when you hear that list? If you're anything like me, I notice even reading it, my body starts to stiffen a little bit. It sort of contracts. There's a pulling away and a feeling of shrinking. Just from hearing a list of words, let alone from the actual experience of those concepts, But I think perhaps even in that little example, if you can think of a time in your life, maybe recently, when your sense of self, your identity got strongly activated, how did it feel? 
you have any can you ha- bring to mind a memory of a time maybe in a conflict where somebody challenged you or something got threatened what was that like Strong emotion came up. Struggle. Sense of struggle. Self-critical. self-critical came up, and how did that feel in the body? Unpleasant. And able to see it and be a bit amused by it. Uh huh. Yeah, so I have a sense of kind of, you were doing this with your body, like kind of collapsing in or resisting in some way. Does that feel accurate? No. No? It's not what you were doing? Uh, no, that is what I did. Okay. Just seeing you do that, I could see. That yeah. Yeah, so the body kind of caves in a bit or pulls away, Yeah. So that's the experience we commonly have when there is strong identification with a sense of self. What might be more subtle and harder to recognize is the opposite. So if you can think of a time when the sense of self was much more in abeyance, in the background, maybe very light. Perhaps you were doing something you were enjoying and you were absorbed in it. You felt safe at ease, relaxed. What was that like, if you can bring to mind an experience of the sense of self being a bit lighter? Spacious and not feeling um, limited, feeling open. Yeah, spacious, not limited, open, lovely. A few people nodding. Yeah, so connecting with a feeling of generosity and you're more aware of others and your own sense of self is less in the foreground. Yeah, great. So generally speaking, there's a sense of more ease, more spaciousness, more connectedness, more openness, perhaps uh, uh, freedom, you know, joy, somebody said. Yeah. So as this insight into anatta deepens, there tends to be a shift from being self-centered, as Mark was saying, to more other-centered, or ultimately to be non-centered. Because it's not that we're focusing on others at the expense of ourselves. That would in some ways just be another form of delusion. Ultimately, the distinctions between self and other become less relevant and there's no need to refer to a center at all. So although this understanding might seem uh, counterintuitive, it's something that we can train in and that's what these mindfulness practices are about. We can train in seeing the truth of not-self on deeper and deeper levels. And all of us here are already engaged in that to some extent because there's an aspect of it that's built into our mindfulness practice. So as you know, mindfulness, an aspect of it is the attitude of non-judgment. 
non-struggle, non-resisting. And it's sometimes described as bare awareness. So we're trying to stay as close to the immediacy of our experience as possible and to keep releasing the judgments about it, the analysis, the stories that we tend to add. And as we get used to being with the immediacy of our experience, without adding our habitual reactivity to it, it gets easier to notice the times when we do start to move into, I'm doing this because it's clinging, grasping, identifying, holding on, making it me and mine. In the beginning, though, for most of us, this training starts with noticing where we do cling. And so this is where, again, I'm going to be a little bit technical for a while, but hopefully we'll come back and bring it back into actual practice. So the Buddha came up with yet another handy list, a list of the five clinging aggregates. And these are five distinct aspects of our experience that the Buddha recognized are areas where we very commonly tend to construct a sense of self from. And he named these five clinging aggregates as part of his definition of the first noble truth. So again, who remembers what the first noble truth is? That's the first foundation of mindfulness. Suffering, the first noble truth, usually translated just as there is suffering. Dukkha, stress, distress. So I'll read you the actual definition because it's a little more nuanced. This is Tanasaro Bhikkhu's translation and he uses the word stress as a translation for dukkha. So this is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, despair are stressful. Association with the unloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So the Buddha in that definition takes everything and in the end defines the five clinging aggregates as stressful. But in English, I think, for most people, that term clinging aggregate, what is that? It doesn't have much meaning. So we have to unpack it a bit. The Pali word usually translated aggregate is kanda, and it literally means heap or bundle, pile or grouping or aggregate. And we use that word similarly in English as a component of concrete. So I was familiar with the term aggregate when I was an architect as being the gravel and so on that goes into making concrete. It's the sand or the rocks or the metal that's mixed with cement to make concrete. And so you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do with dukkha? I'll come back to that in a moment. 
So the five aggregates are these categories of how we experience the world. And again, it's not in themselves, they're not a problem. It's a clinging to them that is the issue. So coming back to the concrete analogy, clinging is like the cement that binds the aggregates together. So when we bring together cement and aggregates, we get concrete and it sets hard and for many of us that's how we experience our sense of self (laughs) aggregates and clinging come together and where you become solid rigid long-lasting and hard so what are the five aggregates the first one is material form which includes our physical bodies The second one is feeling tone. The third one is perceptions. The fourth one is volitional formations. And the fifth one is consciousness. I'm going to be going over these in the next several talks, so you don't have to take them all in now. And I don't want to uh, get too bogged down in them. So tonight I'm just going to give you a very brief snapshot of each one and then we can come back and revisit them in a little bit more detail in future talks. So the first aggregate is material form, including our physical bodies. And I think it's probably fair to say most of us tend to take our bodies pretty personally and identify with them in various ways. A bit of laughter there. (laughs) Sounds true. You're recognizing the truth there. So we identify with our physical appearance, our size, our height, our weight, our shape, our skin color, our sexual attractiveness or lack of it, our age, our health, our physical ability, and so on. And it's common to to hear people say things like, I hate my big nose, or my flabby arms, or my youthful appearance, or my aging appearance. And we identify others in the same way by the visual appearance of others' bodies. And we project all kinds of identities onto them. Again, based on size and height and weight and shape and so on. So the body is a very powerful arena of identification. But it also um, is what provides us with the sense organs that allow us to see and hear and smell and taste and touch and know the world. And with each of those sense contacts, there's an automatic recognition of that experience as being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So those of you who know the Satipatthana Sutta, you recognize feeling tone, Vedana. And this is just part of our function of human biology. It's apparently part of our more reptilian brain from when we had to instantly recognize whether something was a threat or could be eaten or was going to eat us or we could have sex with it. So there's this this basic primal recognition of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral that's going on 
in every moment of experience, including right now. As you hear the words, as you look around, as you think, there's this just below the radar firing of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral going on all the time. And in terms of clinging, pretty obviously when something is pleasant, we move towards it. If it's unpleasant, we move away from it. If it's neutral, we just space out or go looking for something more stimulating. We also can complexify that basic pleasant, unpleasant, neutral into our habitual liking and disliking and preferences and then create a whole identity out of our preferences. So I might say, I love contemporary architecture and that becomes who I am in that moment. Or I dislike right-wing politicians. Sorry if any of you here are right-wing politicians. Or I'm indifferent to sport and I don't get why people would be interested in chasing a ball around a field. And again, you might hear how I'm making an identity out of my likes and and dislikes. So hopefully that's relatively straightforward. When we come to the next two clinging aggregates, we have perception and volitional formations. And this is where it gets more complex because the mind takes the raw data of our experience and uses it to to construct a fixed, solid, permanent identity. So perception or sanya is the mind's capacity to recognize and to name what the experience is. So for example, bell or hand, or person, space in the room, sound of my voice. Those are all perceptions. And again, this function of the mind is so automatic that we don't generally even notice that the mind is constantly generating this stream of perceptions and recognizing things. And it's necessary for us to do that. If we couldn't recognize and perceive, we'd have a really hard time navigating the world. If we had to work out every time, what is that thing and what do I do with it? It would be exhausting. The problem comes is when we believe those perceptions as being absolutely fixed and real and true. So we tend to just go, oh yeah, bell, bell is a bell is a bell, we move on. The other interesting thing about perception is it brings with it a sense of time and a sense of someone because I can only recognize Bell because somewhere in my earlier history I learned to recognize that this round metal shape is a Bell. So time comes in and then a sense of me here who's recognizing that there. So perception can recognize this as a bell, but often it brings with it, oh, it looks like a Tibetan bell. Isn't that that symbol that they use in Tibet a lot? 
I remember seeing that when I was at the Mon Lam in Bodgaya a few years ago. That was such a great trip. I always said I would go back, but oh, travel these days, what a nightmare. I wonder how those people are doing. Perhaps I should send them some money. Oh. And we've gone off into this entire fabricated world from sense contact and perceiving and not recognizing what we could call proliferation. That's actually the next category of the aggregates, uh, which is volitional formations, or sankara in Pali. And this is where the constructing mind really takes that raw material and pulls things together, takes a bit of this, pulls in a bit of that, and whew, here I am in my story. And again, it's not that this is in itself a problem, but if we believe all of that constructing to be absolute reality, we're setting ourselves up for problems, for suffering. And even with perceptions, it's amazing how so solidly we can take our perceptions. You know, we see it on the internet all the time. There are those silly memes that emerge like that. Did any of you see that photograph of a wedding dress and some people thought it was black and blue and some people thought it was gold and white? And there were millions and millions of people arguing about this image of a dress. Or how many times have you had an argument with somebody about whether a color was blue or green? You know, there's just We take our perceptions to be real and true instead of recognizing that it's part of our organism and that all of us see things differently. So we believe in our formations and we create entire narratives that we orient our whole being around. And at some point, when we meditate, we can come into contact with some of those core beliefs that feel so core, we didn't even realize they were beliefs. And I think most of us have certain stories that we tell ourselves that we navigate the world through. And sometimes people say to me things like, I was always the black sheep in my family. Nobody ever understood me. Or I never learned how to handle my anger. It was totally my father's fault. Or I should have been a better parent. I really let my kids down. So we make these statements about ourselves and then inhabit that as if it was a true and fixed reality. So lastly, we come to the aggregate of consciousness. And this is sometimes named as the last holdout of clinging because it's in some ways the most subtle. We might be able to see through the content of our thoughts. We might recognize when clinging is happening. But often... Often there's still a sense of I'm in here doing my meditation practice and knowing and seeing through all of this sense of self. So on a course level, clinging to consciousness sometimes shows up as being identified with the mind, especially with the intellect. 
So that sense of I'm the smart one who understands everything and can figure it all out. And so this practice can actually be very threatening to people who are identified with their intellects because it challenges that self-perception. It's not possible to think our way into insight. It has to emerge naturally from our embodied intuitive wisdom. So clinging to consciousness can show up as that belief that there's just someone in here who's being mindful or who's doing the practice. The one who is aware and present to everything that's happening. But even that sense of being the one is again a mental formation without any solid entity in there that that is referring to. So a few maybe slightly puzzled looks. I'll just end by saying that this, with this quick overview of the clean, five aggregates of clinging, as we dive into them and start to uh, get a handle on them, this not-self becomes more and more our default way of being in the world. And it literally makes more room in the heart and the mind for skillful qualities such as the Brahma-Vihara to arise. Because when we're just locked in those same old patterns of self-referencing, <clears throat> the world, as we were exploring earlier, becomes smaller, tighter, more rigid, more habitual. Conversely, when that starts to open up, as many of you described, there's more space, there's more options, there's more choice about how we respond. And we start to experience deeper and deeper levels of freedom. So there's a, a famous quote from the 19th century Tibetan meditation master Shabkar that some of you may be familiar with. I think it's relevant here. He's describing the mind's nature. And he says, the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. So the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. So when the heart-mind stops its incessant self-referencing, it can be described as empty. But that empty is not nothingness. Because the obscurations of self-obsession are gone, there's a natural radiance, there's a lightness that becomes possible. And that lightness supports the ceaseless responsiveness of the awakened heart-mind. And that responsiveness is the expression of compassion. And that compassion has become possible because of the deepest insights into anatta, not self. So in this way, the two wings to awakening of wisdom and compassion come together in perfect balance.
So for all of us, may our insight into anatta support this ever-deepening freedom of heart and mind so that our lives can become a contribution to the welfare and the happiness and the freedom of all beings. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.